Hi, everybody, and thank you very much for checking out this week's edition of Tellich Talks. Clevelander John Vasso Jr. is a former professional bowler who spent the majority of his life in the business world. He did real estate, but mostly spent a great chunk of time dealing with title insurance. But John, like so many of us, has been affected by cancer. In fact, he was inspired by the heroic battle that his tiny little nephew, Richie White, had with cancer. Richie lived just four years, passing away in 1991. Well, that led John to a challenge, embarking on a big quest. A big challenge in his mind was to write a book and closely follow the journey of 23 different individuals. These were grown-ups and kids in how they dealt with all forms of cancer. That led to the publishing of a book called Today's Heroes, Surviving with Style. The book has been out for more than a decade. And on today's episode, John will talk about many of the memorable individuals who opened up their lives to John in order to help him write the book. Also, in something I might jokingly refer to as burying the lead, remember John was a pro bowler? Well, three years ago, John suffered a stroke. But you can't keep this man down one bit. Stay with us. During the interview, late in it, he talks about how he battled back from the stroke and how bowling gave him hope and encouragement in how it all came together for him on one glorious time out on the lanes. So, without any further ado, John Vasso Jr. on this week's Tellich Talks. Well, let me tell you about Richie White, my nephew. And thank you for having me here. Sure. It's great to spend time with you. Uh, in 1989, my nephew, my younger sister's son, uh, Richie was diagnosed with a very aggressive brain tumor on the stem of his brain. How old was he then? Uh, he was 18 months okay. old. He lived two and a half years. He had five brain surgeries, seven or eight related surgeries, shunts, broviacs, things like that. Just a roller coaster ride. He uh, passed away on September 3rd of 1991, three days after his fourth birthday. So I, I would tell you, as an adult at that time, I would be 35 years old a few days after he passed away. I think I became an adult in 1989 when Richie was diagnosed. My parents were both alive. They lived with my sister. And to watch the whole family go through this process was incredible. Wow. Um, so here's a little four-year-old child that becomes your inspiration. And he dies in 91. And I had thought about writing a book ever since I grew up on the east side of Cleveland. I thought a Collinwood kid who didn't go to college, what a great idea. And I had this idea of writing a story about cancer survivors and how their life changed. Okay. Uh, and that happened in the mid 2000s. Okay. So the project really started around 05. And I reached out to a, some children that I knew that were diagnosed, some adults okay. in my life. I asked them to write a page. These folks wrote a page, couple pages, 
And then I met a guy by the name of Bob Shook. Okay, I and, wanted to ask you about him. Oh, you did? Good. He, he he went through something similar, right? He did lose? He lost his wife, his wife in the late 70s, early 80s to cancer. Okay. And he wrote the same book, but his book was not a page or two pages. It There were like 13 chapters, okay. and they were long chapters. And from writing that book, and he was an insurance guy, and I'm a title insurance guy. Bob has written over 40-some books. Okay, he's had New York Times bestsellers. He wrote the Longaberger book. Um, he wrote the... Uh, the Longaberger's The Family Here in Ohio? Yes, yes. yes. Okay. When Dave was dying, he wrote that book. If, if you see it, and it's written by his daughter, but it was penned by Bob Shook, by and Bob, he's Bob mentioned. Oh. He did Mary Kay's cosmetic books. Oh. And the interesting thing about that is they print about 2500 a year for new people that sell Mary Kay. Yeah, it's all so that is industry. that's an annuity for him. An incredible writer. I met him uh, through a public speaker, team building guy uh, that I could talk to for a half hour about him. But Bob was there and I told him I was writing a book and he was gracious enough to invite me to Columbus. Okay. He looked at my 11 stories and he was dead honest. He said, these aren't very good. I don't know that people are going to read them. These folks really don't know what to tell you. And he goes, you're a sales guy. Why don't you write down the questions that you want answered so that there's uniformity? A little bit of an outline. For yeah, these people. And, I, and, and I realized that I had to do some interviewing. So I wrote down 12 or 13 questions. I sent them to Bob. He elaborated on the questions and added a few more. And not every story touches on all 13, but it was systematically, it was a good format. I see. So uh, I started in 06 interviewing people, and here's a motivator for you. It's probably early 2010. The book was published and released on May of 11. One of the teenage kids who are now in college wrote me an email and said, hey, how's the book coming along? And it became a great motivator. And that was Matthew Cordy, who went to Toledo, who's still up in Toledo, I believe. And uh, I said, you know, I have to finish this book. These people are sharing very intimate stories. You really owed it to them. I owed it to them. And originally it was going to be 51-page stories. It ended up with 23 stories, I think 145 pages of text in the book. And... uh, you know, Little Richie was the guy that motivated me to do that. He's been my hero in life to go through everything he went through at such a young age. And me to watch my sister, my brother-in-law, their family. My mother died about a year and a half later. Her heart was broken. She buried a grandchild. Really Never want to do that. Not the no. path of life. You yeah. know, she said, I'm supposed to bury my parents and you're supposed to bury me and so on. But so uh, so the book was written in 05, started to be written. It was finished in 11. And, um, you know, I still have a few hundred copies mm-hmm. uh, today. I don't even try to sell the book. If anybody listening to this podcast needs one of these books, I'm sure that John will ask for a sure. phone number or email address. Yeah. Uh, I'd like you to reach out to me and I'm more than happy to supply that to you. It's a a labor of love and uh, deep emotion that comes 
I can see it on your face just recounting what, you, you know, what your mom had to go through and, you know, what uh, the family members were sharing at the time of this little boy who only had four years on this planet, but yes, certainly made, left an indelible mark oh, days, sure. you know, years, sure. years, and we're still talking about him him today. Um, how did you come up with the name of the book? And then, uh, uh, and, and then let's, let's talk about, you know, some of the instances that uh, people that you focus sure. in on this. So there's one family, uh, like the Reed family, you have like oh. th- three generations here Correct. That dealing with, Correct. with cancer. Yeah. I, dealt. I, a customer of mine, an attorney down in Cincinnati, Mike Reed was with Porter Wright, Morris and Arthur. He's now retired. Uh, his son, Ben, was diagnosed with a brain tumor at like 11 or 12. Mm-hmm. And the Richie White Fund, we called the Cincinnati Bengals or the Reds, and they gave us a bunch of goodies, and we dropped them in the mail to Ben. Well, I decided to do Ben's story later in life, and he went to medical school, and he's now a pediatric doctor yeah. on the cancer side because he lived it. He okay. did. What, he first got uh, dealt with it at about age eight? Uh, yeah, yeah. He was he was around ten, somewhere in there. But he had a tumor. It was not cancerous. It was removed. It came back. It was removed again. And many knock seizures on he dealt yeah. with. Yes, yes. And uh, and he's lived to tell about it. And we became good friends and had some interactions, mm-hmm. you know, throughout life. His father uh, was diagnosed with testicular cancer, and now, from the father's standpoint, he was saying, you know, God, just take me, man, but let my kid be okay. Don't let him have any recurrences. And Mike had one testicle removed. And if I can Mike tell Reed. Mike Reed, the attorney, but he, he, he said this to me when I was being interviewed. His brother-in-law was a, a surgeon at Indiana University Medical Hospital. And he said, Mike, we're going to go in and we're going to find out if you have cancer in both testicles, you're going to wake up and not have either one. And he goes, and if you just have one, you have a chance of getting it again. But we're not going to take the other one if not. If you don't have to. And he said, well, if you have to take both, who's going to deal with an attorney that has no balls? (laughs) Right. And you got to think about that a little bit. And he said, you know what, though? I have them replaced with brass balls. And then everybody will call me because they always want an attorney like that. So, and Mike is very good. He shoots, he hunts. uh, He's a great outdoorsman uh, and a downhill skier. His mother was diagnosed with ovarian cancer. And shortly after the book. That's Laurel. Yeah, Yeah, Laura, shortly after the book was published, I had a party at my house and about 15 or 16 of the survivors showed up at my house for a picnic. And I got to have Ben and Laura and Laura's husband, Tom, who's now deceased. You know, Mike was there, his wife. And I had other people there from the young kids to 80 year old people that were, you know, part of the book. Well, you know, it's just amazing uh, as we sit here and talk, John, is that, man, it's just everywhere. You know, so oh. many lives are touched or intertwined by cancer in so many different forms. And 
but it's really heartbreaking when it's the little ones. And you know, oh, yeah. we spoke earlier about you know young little little Rich. white, yeah, young yeah. Richie White, uh, four years of age, you know, to be taken. Yeah. Um, but what an impact he had. Oh yeah, and and you know, I just had breakfast with my sister today. There's going to be a party in on July, July 9th. Uh, we will uh, be entertaining the children at the Cleveland Clinic in oncology, active oncology or just off of it. And we do a Christmas party every year, which the last couple of years, we have just bought gift certificates and delivered them sure. because of the pandemic. So we'll just see if it's safe to go back to the clinic, but we're doing we're doing a picnic this year, which is sponsored by the Richie White Pediatric Fund pediatric family fund. If I could just say this, sure. we were blue collar kids growing up on the east side of Cleveland. Mm. We weren't gonna put a wing on the Cleveland Clinic. We wanted to start a fund that would make kids smile. Obviously. And that has been the basis of it. We've done two fundraisers since 1992. So we have raised money through word of mouth. Sometimes a parent whose child We'll be at a party. We'll write us a check. It's not our deal. Yeah. And the whole idea of the books were to take half of the proceeds of the books and give it to the Richie White Fund. And so it really <clears throat> has made an impact. And and the heart's always in the right place oh, yeah. as you move forward with yes. this. And, yeah. and so many people over the years, you know, because it's been... You know, 12, 13 years since 11, 20, you know, 12 years since you, you know, the book came out in 2011. Uh, and, Correct. And, and Correct. so it's been a while. And so there's been opportunities for the individuals that were written about or wrote their own stories oh, yeah. back, let's say, in 2011. Uh, let's talk about a few that have kind of morphed, you know, the, sure. as, their, as their lives have gone on. What what stands out to you of one or two or three of these? Well, there's these a gal by the name of Shannon Elfers that okay. was like West Side. Uh, she now lives in Sacramento. She's a nurse. She's married. She has two children that I'm aware of. Uh, I was invited to the wedding and I flew out to Sacramento and saw her and her husband who was uh, in the army at the time get married. And I haven't seen her since probably 2011 or 12, something like that. Mm -hmm. But uh, she's healthy. I see her on Facebook. There's a young lady by the name of Rachel Smith. Uh, Rachel lives towards Huron, Ohio. She had leukemia. Now, here's a real interesting story. Uh, Rachel is as tough as any football player that you know. Hmm. She was driving. She was bumping herself and becoming bruised. And she jokingly said to her mother, I probably have leukemia. Mother said, don't talk like yeah, that. Yeah, that's, that's not the well, joking matter. They end up going to the clinic between going to the clinic to take some tests and driving back to the west side of Cleveland in Lorain County, she got a phone call that it was leukemia and she was rushed back there. And Rachel and Shannon and there are a few other children that are on the front cover. Um, they're all grown up, they're all well over 20 years old now, but she's married with a couple of children. And I mean, when we bought gifts for her and Shannon, and I'll name a couple other of the kids, they were just blown away. They actually went Christmas shopping with us for a couple of years after they were deemed okay. 
okay. you know, and still be checked on. Uh, there's a young man by the name of David Shin. Okay. Uh, North you Ridgeville. Wrote him down. Oh, David you wrote Shin, him yeah. down. Well, on his 11th birthday, lymphoma. Yeah. Yes. Okay. And um, David and his mother, Fran, who are like top shelf people, uh, they gave me an unbelievable interview. And I, I was sitting at an Italian restaurant on the west side doing the interview, talking, going over some of the transcript. And I said to them, what do you think the name of this chapter should be? And they both said, you should never take life for granted. And I mean, I looked at both of them and I go, well, we're not going to have any discussion about that. Uh, Fran works at Kleinhens Jewelers. I bowled with the Kleinhenses at the Cleveland Athletic Club. My friend Shane Harmon still works there with Kenny, who runs it. And Fran has been working there for about 10 years. Gary, who is deceased, called me up and he said, hey, I'm interviewing a lady and she put you down as a reference. How do you know Fran Shin? And when I explained David's situation and Fran, well, she's been there ever since. And she's a breath of fresh air. Great, great people. What, so, what, uh, what are some of the common themes uh, of uh, individuals who are dealing with cancer or their family members uh, that you saw in some of those stories that were written for you, John? Okay, and that is a great question, John. Here's the one thing. When there were children that were under 18, young adults, you know, teenagers, down to David, uh, these folks were not worried about dying. They were worried about their mother, their father, their sister, their brothers. Uh, a quick story, and we'll get back to that, sure. uh, because the adults are a little bit different because they have children, right. whether they're grown or growing yeah, up. Yeah, and you, you gave the story <clears throat> earlier about you know Mike saying, oh, yeah. you know, if it could be, if take my, if if my, if you could have my son be okay happily take me and then he was forced in his own situation right with correct with cancer oh yeah he's like oh boy you know what's what is the lord going to do here right and and his feeling was i have to show my kids that i'm brave he has three sons all professional but he had to show his kids that he had courage sure and and i think that played itself out uh but matt cordy who um is a guy that went to Toledo, still lives in Toledo. Great family on the west side in Lorain County. Um, Matt picked out the hymns and the readings for his funeral mass, put them in a suit in his closet. He knew that if he died, he had his knee and part of his shin removed from osteosarcoma. And he's 16, 17 years old. At the time, he planned out his funeral mass so his mom didn't have to do it. Wow. His mother, Gail, had no idea. Wow. She found out about it when she read his chapter. Yeah. Yeah. So that's how children look at it, okay? Um, Adults, they look at who's going to raise my children, what's going to happen to my spouse, Will Uh, will I be okay years from now? Will I be all right working? Who's going to take care of my house? I could tell you that I had a number of people say, the community opens up to you. Listen to them. If if they say, what can I do? Say, can your son come over and cut my lawn? Yeah. Yes. Simple gestures that mean a lot. but, But people 
will help you. They will, they will mow your lawn. They will clean your house. They will bring you food. Sometimes they bring you so much food yeah. that you have food for a very long time. So it to ask people, and it's okay to ask people how they're doing. I mean, I think if I find a lot of people that their friendships sometimes go away because people don't know how to address it. They're, and, they're unfamiliar yeah. and they're they're <clears throat> awkward about it. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I, and I think that if you haven't dealt with it, in your life or you haven't dealt with a child, it's a very tough thing. You asked earlier about um, the title. Yeah. Well, today's heroes, I met a lot of heroes at the Cleveland Clinic. Surviving with style, and this is John Vasso's opinion, you get diagnosed tomorrow afternoon with cancer. You're surviving. They, they're not going to take you away today. You're surviving. And some people will go, Doc, what's the protocol? Should I get a second opinion? What should I do? I'll take the medication. I won't take the medication. I'm going to go on a trip. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. But surviving with style is how people individually address their journey. And it and it really is. It's a journey. It is. So it, it, medically speaking, I, I could tell you that there are names like osteosarcoma is one that's very easy for me to remember, but there were names of cancer that I didn't understand. I don't understand medically how they treat them, but I could tell by looking in people's eyes, they were living their life. They really were. Yeah, and some people did nothing more than say, I'm gonna honker down, I'm gonna get chemo, I'm gonna go home, I'm gonna rest, I'm gonna try to get my appetite back, I'm gonna go to work for a few days, and then I'm gonna get smacked around next week. Yeah. And this goes on and on and on, and sometimes it, it goes on for months. They get a clean bill of health. Sometimes they revisit that journey again. So just be sensitive to people in that situation and understand that, you know, it it could happen again. But a lot of people are not worried about what's going to happen. I think that there's a basis on living your life. And they live each day. And if you've never been diagnosed or really ill, you should take that line and live with it. Live every day because there's no July for sure, yep. August, or next Christmas. So many people uh, that we don't hear about, John, are and aren't in books like yours or aren't profiled on the news. Um, they're doing it in silence. They're doing it with few loved ones, you know, sure. and that that's it's tragic and it's heartbreaking yeah. in so many ways. And then we have our public uh, personalities, if you will. We just had recently our good friend at uh, Fox 8, uh, Tracy McCool's husband, John, yes. four years. He battled, he battled, and and uh, he was not able to uh, uh, stay on this earth, although he still has a great impact uh, above and beyond us now. Uh, and then on the closer side of things, like Natalie Herbrick, one of my colleagues oh, as well. Yeah. She's dealing with uh, breast cancer, and she has a great prognosis, and she's super uplifting type of a personality and so you just pray uh that they're getting the proper support but that's so many people don't have that oh yeah that that either not just necessarily public but just uh friends and family and co-workers just a kind word or a note yes it's missing in and, some ways for and some I, people. I will tell you facebook has yeah. brought a lot of that to light because there's a friend of mine beth that is in uh, medina county okay and she will write paragraphs about what's going on with her. And I mean, she's had a five or six year battle 
and she is just as tough as they come. Yeah. And she lays out all the medications, the protocols, everything that she's going through. But she, mm-hmm. she's a trooper. And Beth, if you're listening to this, I will help you write your book because <laughs> I know she wants to put something down on paper. And I'll, I'll throw another commercial out there. I met Beth through a group called Ears to You. Ears. Ears to You is run by a lady named Ruth Crane, who is a cancer survivor, who sat in the hospital with a bald head and called up her husband and said, bring me a wig, makeup, and my earrings. And that night she vowed, if she got better, she was going to do something. And her give back is earrings that they deliver to hospitals to oncology departments. And it doesn't matter if you're a guy with one earring or two, or you're a gal and you want both earrings. There could be an earring There for you. are a handful of um, jewelers that carry these earrings. They're $10. They're non-allergenic, so they're good they earrings. A, a, a specific symbol? or, or? Uh, No, they're just different. Everybody gotcha. likes a different thing. But that was somebody sitting in a hospital room not feeling sorry for themselves, right. but being uplifted by putting their makeup on. Yeah, and going on and, and uh, facing the, this, yeah. Difficult, yeah. Uh, this difficult future with a brave, brave uh, uh, outlook on life. Exactly. Uh, the one thing that we uh, seem to be somewhat of a recurring theme with, with, with some of the individuals is they're brave and they make good progress, but there still is always that feeling in the back of their heart or mind that perhaps if, they, if they're you know, put into remission or d- deemed in remission that you know, the cancer could come back. And there was one lady here, I believe it was uh, Jan Holenbeck, oh, yeah. with the many scars. Tell her story. Oh, yeah. Well, Jan uh, Jan was in the title industry through a, a piece of software. Okay. And I met her the month after 9-11 on a treadmill in Palm Springs. And we became buddies. So every year we'd see each other at these national conventions. In 06... Uh, 06, 07, we were in Chicago, and I told her about the book. Uh, actually, let me step back a second. We were we were in San Francisco in 06, and I asked her to go out for a drink. Okay. She lives outside of Seattle, Washington, in okay. Burlington. And I said to her, you want to go out for a drink? And she said no, and she had a bandana on. But, you know, she was like a wild child from the 70s like we were, you know, so I just thought it was stylish. Well, here she had been diagnosed with breast cancer. She had uh, lost her hair. She was working the convention, going back to her room, sleeping, following up on leads, and just doing what she had to do in San Francisco. She called me shortly after that. She apologized that she didn't take me up on a drink and shared with me what was going on. I said, I'm writing a book. I would love to have your story. So I interviewed her. And if you get the book, you're going to see a couple pictures of her in Croatia and Italy. Well, Debbie and I have been to Italy and France with Jan and her husband, Doug, 2014, 16, 19, and 22. We have spent four days to a week whether it be Sicily, the hillside in Bone, France, wow. or Cinque Terre 
in Italy. Yeah, the five uh, terraces. Yes, we have we have spent time together. We communicate like every month, month and a half. But she was a lady that she just bared down and took her medicine and let it beat her up, and she lived off of it and she fought back. And uh, you know, for Jan, I mean, you're looking at probably 2006 or 2005 being diagnosed, we're in 2023. And I know that she headed back to Italy in September with her son, Jan, and her husband, and they're taking his family there. So that's, great friends. That's amazing that, you, first of all, you met through work, and then this cancer that you were on a big project writing or starting to sure. write a book about, uh, it's linking you, and then you're real good friends as, as you go forward. Yeah. This This devastating... Um, uh, disease that has struck, stricken so many people, yeah. and yet in some poignant and, and uh, ironic way, it brings people together. Yeah, it's a big fringe benefit. I mean, Jan and Doug have been to our house before, and we've been to their house out in Burlington, Washington. They were on their way to uh, Washington, D.C., and they flew to Cleveland. They rented a car here and ended up <laughs> driving the rest of the way. But uh, yeah, they're great love and friendship. Also reading in the book about <clears throat> Bonnie Hartle. Yes. She said, cancer is my new job. Yes. Um, Bonnie Hartle was a cousin through marriage to a guy named Jack Loney, who is like the second story in the book. And Jack is the only one of the 23 people that has passed away. And he died at 89, and that could have been five or six years ago, uh, a really good artist from Northeast Ohio that would paint your boat, your car, your home. And I'm not talking about the exterior. He would do a painting of your prized possessions. And uh, I, I got introduced to Jack, who introduced me to Bonnie. And Jack was a poet. He was a naval officer during the Korean War, uh, turned, turned out to be a great friend. Bonnie and her husband lived outside of Columbus, Ohio. And Bonnie was like, look, you know, I just gotta help myself get cured. Yeah. And so many of us are so busy running around in life. We don't take time to rest well, to eat well, or to exercise well. And these folks, like Bonnie, that was just a matter of, I'm going to do whatever they tell me to do. She didn't question the doctors. And, you know, it's, and she was probably in her early 70s when I interviewed her. John, so many of these people in this book uh, have shown great courage. And I would say, wow, an adult, you know, great for you. And this is wonderful. But how about some of these kids? That, and, and of course, you know, if we go all the way back to a little boy just living yeah. four years, I'm sure fought with his best uh, oh, yeah. uh, zest for life as possible. But how is it that these kids can have so much courage fighting? Well, this, you know, I, I think optimism. Yeah. As you get to, you know, th there's a great saying, the more stuff you own, the more stuff owns you. You know, when you're 10 years old or you're 17 years old, you don't own a lot of stuff. And when Matt Cordy was uh, diagnosed, he was um, in a choir and he had to go for his prognosis. And his question to the doctor was, well, am I gonna be able to go to my choir practice tonight? Mm -hmm. Like, you know, his mother's thinking life or death and telling other people, 
okay? And Matt Cordy's thinking about choir. So they're more in the now. Yeah. I could share with you being retired, uh, I'm more in the now today. And I was traveling all over the country for 11, 12 years, flying three, four times a month. My life was nonstop. But you had earnings to make everything. up. Everything. You had all, yeah. Yeah, all everything. these balls you were yeah. juggling. Yeah, you're juggling a lot of stuff. Yeah. And today I sit back and I go, you know, I can make time to talk with John Tillich. I could stop at Martin's Benswear and visit my brother-in-law and nephew before I stopped on here. On 185th. On 185th, yeah. So, you know, you have a little bit of time. But you got to enjoy the moment. And I think youth has that. Yeah. You know? Yeah, they mo- as you said, they live in the in the moment. They're, you know, yeah. what are we doing today? I can recall all those those uh, days as a as a kid growing up in Euclid, and and it was you left the house in the morning, and we're gonna play ball today, and we're I'm going to my friend's house, and then we're and then that's all you concerned yourself right. with. It wasn't what's gonna happen ten years from now or yeah. fifteen twenty years. When you're an adult, as you mentioned, you were worried about your goals and sales and, and am I going to make, you know, get the bonus this year sure. and my kids and pay for tuition. <laughs> One of your children are going to drive. You got to get a car. Now you got a new worry. <laughs> I, I don't know that. I don't know if young, young people worry the way you know adults and you can name them. If I sure. said name three people in your life that worry all the time, there are people that constantly worry. Yeah. I, I, these children that I interviewed, they weren't worried. Little Richie was in a hospital bed with his neck cut up. Oh and at two and a half years yeah. old, you don't have any worries. You think that the Cleveland Clinic is a place that everybody goes to. Yeah. I mean, what is your process? Richie loved the vending machine and he could not swallow towards the end of his life. But everybody gave him quarters. He went to the vending machine. He bought lots of candy. <laughs> and when you would come to see him, you go, Richie, could I have those M&Ms? And he'd sort of look at you out of the side of his face, and he'd <laughs> hand you the M&Ms. They were his power. So, yeah, but worry, I, you know, I mean, it's it's complicated when you talk about young and you talk about older. You okay. Know. Uh, how about your history with bowling? Ah. Misled youth. <laughs> um, I had a young man by the name of Ray Catone on East 140th tell me that I, if I helped him with his press route, that I was 12 years old, that he'd take me bowling. And Playmore Lanes was two blocks away from where I lived. But I didn't know anything about bowling, and I didn't have the initiative. I played baseball at Humphreys Field, sure. and I was a you decent infielder, but I wasn't big enough to ever go probably play in high school or college. But when I started bowling, I knew I was going to be a professional bowler. And I worked at Playmore Lanes for a couple of years. I started a junior league when I was 14. The guys who owned it said, hey, look, if you bring 32 kids here, we'll charge them a dollar, a dollar for three games of bowling and a pair of shoes for a quarter. And I started a league that ran for two years until I got into St. Joe's and I bowled on their high school team. Uh, but I turned professional at 18. <clears throat> I went on a tour from 20, my age of 20 to 25. Um, I, I just thought I would be the greatest bowler in the world. That got complicated at about 25. And uh, But to give you a little bit of an idea, I won a pro tournament in, in um, 19, 
90, I'm sorry, 1981. Okay. That's 42 years ago. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. I won a tournament. It was the biggest pro tournament in the history of the PBA. It was 1982. I'm 80, sorry. Okay. I got married in 81. Eight months later, I won the tournament. It was the Budweiser Open outside of Detroit. It was a $5,000 paycheck for a regional tournament. There was only four states. It was the largest purse for a regional tournament at that time. And I was selling real estate in Euclid. And somebody said, are you going to buy a house? Because we were married less than a year. And I said, no, we're going to Hawaii in November. He goes, you're not going to buy a house. I go, I know we're going to buy a house. Eventually. But we may never get to Hawaii. Hawaii. (laughs) So we took the whole purse for the most part and went to Hawaii for a couple weeks in Southern California. Um, I bowled out on tour. My best finish was sixth. In a national term, I got to sit on national TV. Okay. I did throw two 300 games, and I have never given up my pro card. So I'm a 66-year-old professional bowler. This is awesome. Uh, yes, and I pay my dues every year. Um, you know, it's I just want to die with my pro card. I haven't really competed since the early 90s, and I quit bowling in the 90s because my children were little. Yeah. I bowled at Wycliffe Lanes. And my son would say, or daughter, would you read me a story? And I'd go, no, I have to go bowling. Monday night at 9.30, I'd leave the house about quarter to nine, and I'd get there and the lanes were broken down. And we didn't start till 10.15. And I thought, I didn't read John or Angela's story because I had to go bowling. So I quit bowling for 10 years. Um, A gentleman, a law firm down in Cleveland, uh, Jim... uh, Names are tough to come. Jim Griffith. Jim Griffith. Oh, Jim Griffith. Okay. Yeah, McDonald Hopkins. He asked me if I would bowl at the Cleveland Athletic Club. I flat out turned him down in 96, 97. In 01, I went and walked through the place. I fell in love with it. Uh, The Athletic Club closed the end of 07. My wife and my daughter and I were there when they closed. Our league went to Cloverleaf. Now it's at Yorktown. Uh, we still compete against the Detroit Athletic Club since ni- 1915. There's we have been, been a com- competition an inner, inner, club, inner club, and we've been going up to Detroit the last few years because we don't have a club. Um, but uh, I've met great friends, uh, you know, through that journey with Cleveland Athletic Club. I'll share this with you. I've had seven 300 games uh, before April 5th of this year. I had a stroke three years ago on April 5th of 2020. Uh, I go bowling on April 5th of 2023. There's a gentleman that bowls at Yorktown in the league next to us. Joe's 63-64. Had a stroke in 2021. And I got to be friends with him because one of the bartenders there introduced me. I walked up to him. I go, hey, Joe, how you doing? He goes, good, John. How about you? I go, good. I go, just want to let you know, today is three years since I had my stroke. And he goes, wow. He goes, well, you're doing okay. I go, yeah, I'm getting by okay. I shot 192 that night, 179. In the third game, I threw 12 shots, as good as I've ever thrown 12 shots in my life. And I had done it seven other times. Uh, I got up in the eighth frame, ninth frame, said, if I throw this strike, I know I'm going to strike in the 10th, 11th, and 12th. And I did throw the strike in the ninth. Uh, I got up each time 
in the 10th frame, the 11th frame, and the 12th. And I have a bowling coach named Phil Cilia, and his son, Phil Cilia Jr., owns Custom Fit Pro Shop. Um, I got up and I said, Phil, I'm just going to let gravity do its job. I threw the 10th one. I threw the 11th one. I got up for the 12th shot. I said, Phil, gravity, mom and dad, I love you. And I threw an absolutely spectacular shot that people captured on video, posted on Facebook. It's as close to a near-death or a spiritual, you know, uh, moment. Oh, yeah, yeah. And there were two guys that came up to me that were in tears that I bowled with. And when I told them that it was the three-year anniversary, because nobody in the league knew that it was three years. I knew and I told Joe. So after a couple of them knew, they were just awestruck. I averaged 193 this year. You know, the last couple of years, my average has been under 200, but I averaged 200 from 19 years of age, you know, through 63. And so. you, you look great. You, you know, I feel good. You, you feel I feel good. Yeah. And I'm grateful. I, I want to tell you, it, it was difficult learning how to walk again and not to say I'm not 100%. But there are a lot of things that you can do. I just am gifted with good hand-eye coordination and a very straight arm swing. <laughs> so I could actually hit down the lane 40 feet uh, okay. pretty consistently. Um, but uh, there's there's more to do on the lane. So. Boy, is there a video of, uh, of Oh, yeah. Of the, 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 yeah. The I'll show it to you I've, after. I've, I've yeah. got to see that. I mean, okay. to do that on the anniversary? Oh, yeah. Well, that was, you know, like I say, it was a spiritual something, moment. Something yeah. was working here. Yeah, 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 yeah. Wow. I agree. What a way to end this interview. Yeah, well, John, thank you for your time. I really appreciate the invite. Uh, my, my pleasure, and um, much kudos to you for what you've done on writing this book, and I hope that more people get a chance to to um, check it out, or in the very least, understand that there's people like you out there that, that really care about those that are dealing with uh, uh, such a devastating thing that cancer can be, and there's hope. And that's what you there provided is. with this book, and these people, by opening up their lives, have shown that there's hope, because 22 out of 23 of the people featured are oh, still yeah. with us, and the yeah. one gentleman went to 89, which I'll and sign up for right He did not die now. of cancer. He had prostate cancer, and he had skin cancer. Sign me and up. And when his wife called me and told me that his heart gave out, you know, I thought, well, he, he, he lived it all. He lived it all, and that's what I would tell all of you, you know, just it's one day at a time. In, enjoy it. Cherish it. Enjoy talking to you, John. Thank you, John. Yeah. Thanks very much to John for the great interview. And if you want to check out the book, you can go to johnvasso.com or you can email him at jv at johnvasso.com. Vasso is V-O-S-O. And I dedicate this episode of Tellich Talks to the memory of little Richie White, the four-year-old little warrior who fought and who served as an amazing testament to toughness. May his memory live on. And keep in your heart all those who have dealt with this devastating disease year in and year out. Thanks very much for listening, everybody. We'll see you next week with another edition of Tellich Talks.